Hello again. My name is Mike Wong, and this is Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. As you may know, my co-host for the first dozen or so episodes of Strange New Worlds is currently in Edinburgh for a semester abroad. She left just a few weeks before Star Trek Discovery launched, which was pretty unfortunate timing if you ask me. But thanks to the magic of subspace communications, aka Skype, I was able to catch up with her shortly after the release of episode 3, which was titled Context is for Kings. <laughs> How's it going, Elise? <laughs> hey Mike, um, it's going great. Uh, I'm glad I could make the subspace transmission and get to you over in Pasadena, where it's probably nice and warm, and I'm rather cold but loving it <laughs> yeah it it was like 90 degrees yesterday yeah no it was like 50 degrees today but again i'm really enjoying that i have this closet full of winter wear i never get to use in california now i'm finally using it i have my like away uniform that i finally get to put on that's right remember those um those jackets what do we call them the, the, like, from exposure beyond jackets? the exposure jackets or, oh, from beyond kirk's from jacket that costs yeah. like 400 dollars mm-hmm. oh jeez. Yeah, no, I would have liked that. But the, in the in the animated series, they had these like exposure belts that they could put on that would just like force field them. I think it's so they could have like get around having to draw like spacesuits. Uh-huh. <laughs> so they just had these like force field belts like to be in, in non habitable places. I'm glad they didn't roll that over into the live action stuff. <laughs> yeah, but there was a really cool animated series touchstone in episode three of Discovery. I've not seen. You've not seen episode three. Okay, yeah. okay. Well, we no have spoilers. to talk. Oh no my spoilers. goodness. I can talk about the first two episodes. Okay. So, yeah. It turned out that Elise hadn't watched episode three yet. But that's okay, because we still had a lot to talk about based on episodes one and two. And what better place to start than with the Klingons? The opening with the Klingons and having the Klingon translation and end in an English phrase was fantastic. As somebody who's like super into languages as well, it's so powerful to me that the guy who was, who was speaking there would choose to talk about how dangerous the words we come in peace are by actually using the English words instead of translating it into Klingon. That implies that even Klingons who don't speak Federation standard English would have still heard this. Mm-hmm. And they would, it's like how everyone knows what bonjour means, right? Sure, yeah. Everybody knows like mi casa es tu casa. Everybody knows a couple of like key phrases from these languages that you don't, you don't necessarily speak, but you've come into contact with. Well, for, for Klingons, the defining interaction with Federation standard English is we come in peace. It's this, co- it's this myth of what's going to happen when they come into contact with the Federation. Right. So like, I bet all of the Klingons in the room there, most of them probably don't speak Federation standard English. This is like before the Klingons and the Federation were interacting in a lot of meaningful ways. But they know what this means. They know what we come in peace means. Yeah, I like so. that you use the word myth there because we, we yeah. spoke about myth in episodes six and seven, right? Yeah. And how... Certain words, in this case, the words we come in peace in English, connote more than just their straight meaning. They connote some kind of intention, a, a very large 
backstory, some some kind of uh, historical interaction between these two superpowers in yeah, the galaxy. It's, it's, it's not just peace, too. It's all of the policies behind the Federation. Like, their peace also means, like, the Prime Directive. We come in peace could mean we're not going to interfere with the civilization you think we should interfere with for moral reasons. We come in peace could mean, as we've seen in other like, episodes, like, from Enterprise, uh, letting an entire civilization die out. We come in peace could mean forcing a warlike people to not act warlike, which is something that the Klingons are having to deal with because their culture is so warlike. The Federation's promise of peace is a direct threat to their culture. So peace in that connotation is dangerous. So it wouldn't be even like the Klingon word for peace wouldn't have all of that connotation attached for attached exactly. to it. It would probably be more of like a ceasefire or a, a respite between two combatants, not the threat of having your entire way of life wiped away in favor of this earth ideal of no warriors, right? In terms of aesthetic, we are both getting used to the Klingon's new look, and I'm still grumbling that neither the Kelvin timeline nor Discovery is acknowledging the human augment DNA. But you probably don't want to hear about that again. So the next thing I asked Elise was, as a Trekkie, which part of the first two episodes did you love the most? Her answer was pretty surprising to me. The mutiny scene. That was fantastic. That is the kind of, like, moral quandary that I think Star Trek has been dancing around doing, but not actually executing forever. We've had mutinies. We have Kirk cheating tests. We've had... We've had revolts. Nobody's actually taken up a phaser against their captain unless they were compromised in some way or something. And this is interesting because we also did not know if if the Vulcan hello was going to work or not. Like, we didn't know how this was going to pan out for anyone. These are two new characters we've just met. And just the, the hurt, I guess. But then having to overcome that for, like, the greater good, I thought was, was very Star Trek. Like, we're going to have this conflict and, like, even though I know I'm going to jail for this, I'm still going to work through with you because we've got to like persevere for the 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 good old United Federation USP. Like we gotta mm-hmm. gotta do it. That was very. It broke the Roddenberry rule, but then it followed it to a T at the end. I liked that in that there was this this deep conflict that was not entirely resolved. Like like uh, Michael's still going to jail. She's still having to deal with the outcome of her her mutiny, but ultimately. The ideals of the Federation are more important than procedure in the moment, which is something that Star Trek's taught us over and over and over again, that sometimes you need to break the rules to do the right thing. So there are two rules broken, so she mutinied, and then the captain didn't keep her in her cell, or didn't send her to, like, house arrest or wherever, once her cell was no longer capable of being returned to. But they worked together at the end. It wasn't, like, any kind of interpersonal, really, Strife, it was more a conflict of ideas, and at the end, two people who thought this should have been handled very different ways came together to, like, work through it. I don't know, I thought that was pretty pretty great. Very Star Trekian idealism there. Even though their plan of taking captive this yes, Klingon leader Kuma. didn't work out all that well. Which well, is what's well, going to allow the rest of the series to progress. So here's the thing, like, for all of her Vulcan upbringing, 
Michael Burnham is still highly emotional. And after she swung to the complete other side of the pendulum. Yeah. And I want a series Um, all about that. I want to see her grow as a human who was basically a Vulcan in mentality and culture transform into where we saw her in the first two episodes. But anyhow, anti-Vulcan. Yeah. Like she's really following her gut about everything at the end. So I feel like this is what happens when kids go to college when they have really (laughs) restrictive parents. Okay. So like you have this really restrictive parent who's like, thou shalt not do any alcohols. Thou shalt not do the drugs. Thou shalt do all of your homework, and thou shalt never have sleepovers, even though you're, like, 14. So, yeah. So, if you have a parent like that, and then all of a sudden you have college, where you are completely unrestricted, and people are encouraging crazy behavior, and socially rewarding it, being like, oh, like, Jenny's loosening up. Like, oh, yeah, drink, Jenny. That's so cool, Jenny. Like, you're gonna feed into that and people swing totally to the other direction and often they come back to the middle somewhere but i feel like it's really often the kids who had really restrictive parents who end up going the wildest when they're cut off their chains whereas the people who haven't had chains for a while just kind of like yeah okay no big change like still going ahead with my life like yeah i'll have a drink whatever so i feel like that's almost what happened like her human colleagues would be like oh my gosh you smiled like that's so cool mm-hmm and so, oh, that's cool. Like, maybe I should do this more. It's like, and just it completely swings to the other the other side. I don't know. That's my theory. Is that she's she's overcompensating for for her Vulcan her earlier Vulcanness with this kind of hot headed, I have the authority to mutiny sort of behavior. And she swings all the way to the other side, such that she turns the knob on her phaser that sends it from stun to kill. And in that moment where her captain has just been been killed by Takuvma, she kills him. Instead of stunning him to take him hostage, which was their original logical plan. plan. Mm -hmm. So we'll see where that leads down the road. I then turned it around and asked Elise the opposite question. Which part of the two episodes did she dislike the most? Again, the answer took me off guard, as this was something that I was totally not attuned to. But that's great. It's one of the reasons why I love talking to Elise. She sees things from a very different perspective from me and helps highlight things that I may have overlooked. And this time, it was the fight choreography during the nail-biting scene where Michael Burnham and Captain Georgiou beam over to the Klingon ship and confront Takuvma and Volk. So, that fight choreography was written for men. <laughs> that is not how two very small women <laughs> would have overcome giant probably verging on 200 pound guys in full armor and battle training like with phasers yeah but their phasers got knocked away for a part of it and they hand-to-hand fought and the captain got in a like a sword fight with a huge hulking like six foot something klingon behemoth with a bat lift like there's no way she's gonna be able as somebody who goes to the gym and tries to lift and sees what all of my like guy friends are like oh i'm gonna go to the gym for the first time today and casually this like squats like two plates and i'm just like it took me a year and a half to get to one plate like they just like yeah i've never i've never done anything athletic before testosterone is so unfair it's just not how women would win the women could win that fight but they'd have to be clever they'd have to do three punches for every one use their environment intelligently 
There's a movie that came out called Atomic Blonde that's about a female spy, and it had some flaws, but one thing that it was really acclaimed for was how well it treated, it showed how a woman could actually kill full-grown men, like one and a half times her size. Being intelligent, using your environment, using tools, being tricky, being fast, not just like doing what the captain did and like, ah, physically overpowering this guy. Like, there's no way she would have been able to, to push back a bat lift. So you're saying the, the women should have used a little more dexterity versus um, intelligence. strength. Intelligence. Yes, like, okay. Yeah. Intelligence. Because raw strength isn't going to win you that fight. Like, mm-hmm. there, women can be deadly, but upper body strength is just not something, like, physically it's different. Like, as, as much as it's annoying, it's true. Like, it's just, it's different. There's different physiology, hormones do crazy things to your body, and it's just the case. But, you know, it just, it really plays into this trope that male writers writing strong women just write men. They just write male characters and just put an actress in there. Like, they don't deal with the challenges and the different situations that you'll run into. Like, maybe Star Trek's supposed to be this, like, super egalitarian future, but even so, the physical limitation isn't going to disappear unless they start hormone treating or genetically engineering people, which they don't do. We have established this in multiple episodes that humans don't mess with themselves in Star Trek. That's like their whole ethical high ground is that they mm-hmm. don't edit themselves like the Zenobulans do. They decided a while ago after this whole augment war thing happened with Khan that editing people to be better is just not a good idea for people. So we decided to stay weak to keep ourselves strong, which makes me believe we're not editing our future women to have the upper body strength of a bodybuilder, <laughs> a male bodybuilder. Finally, we talked about Saru, the lovable yet scientifically confounding science officer of the USS Shenzhou. What do you mean your planet doesn't have food webs? I think I got a bad taste in my mouth for him when he said, on your planet you have food webs, but in yeah. my planet you are either like prayer. I'm just like, bullshit, buddy. You have, if, if your planet's gonna like persist, you've got bacteria decomposing things. You've got things taking that niche to eat the bacteria that are decomposing things. Yeah. You've got things that take the niche to eat the things that eat the things that are decomposing things. <laughs> well, hold, hold your biology quips for episode three, because I want to talk to you about, <laughs> about something uh, there. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, um, I could watch episode three right now. You should you totally keep me in your corner it. and watch me react. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you want to. Yeah, I'll pull it up. Let's oh, do this. Oh I haven't God. talked to you in a while. Elise actually opened up episode 3, and I put it on on my computer, muted with subtitles, for a rewatch with Elise's live commentary. Now I've got to say, the only thing better than watching Star Trek is watching Star Trek while simultaneously watching one of your best Trekkie friends react to it. It was pretty great to see her meet the crew of the Discovery for the first time, wonder what was going on on board of this strange ship and gush about the props and the visual effects of the show. After the end credits rolled, I could finally talk to Elise about episode three, Context is for Kings. All right, Elise. Mm-hmm. We should probably not speak for much longer than five minutes because I'm getting hungry. But, <laughs> but 
we just rewatched episode three, or I just rewatched episode three with live commentary from your first watching of episode three. Just go ahead, shoot out what came to your mind. It's really dark. It's good. It's so tense. Jeez, it's it's so much heavier than than I'm accustomed to Star Trek being. Like, it just the the music and the characters and just the sinister feeling and Starfleet like ripping apart like beloved colleagues like mm-hmm. oh geez oh, the, the the end shot with like the captain's menagerie where it's like we open up with him with this tribble on his desk and we're like that's interesting you've got a tribble I was like oh that's a great idea and fortune cookies like, <laughs> for some reason yeah but I mean then it we end seeing him with like this like weird med bay full of creatures and skeletons and this guy's weird seems like he's got a bit of an obsession with like strange creatures and he's got a skeleton of a humanoid and a like a dead thing on his desk and like mm-hmm. oh boy yeah i think that this, skeleton this guy is something he, that he gives me like uh like bond villain vibes mm. um i feel like he, he's one of those people who honestly believes what he's doing is right but like will literally just I mean, like, uh, people who've done terrible things have believed they're right, so he's, he's scary to me. Yeah, that, that skeleton you were pointing out, people are thinking that that's a Gorn skeleton, which is kind of interesting, because previously, I think it was established that Kirk made first contact with the Gorn yeah. back in the episode Arena from the original yeah. series. So, you know, Discovery just seems like a very shady ship, almost like special ops, or maybe even yeah, Section 31. it reminds me of that, that ship the, like the dreadnought from the the new it does right because it's got a cut yeah. out part of yeah. the hull yeah it's very it's it, intri- like, is, is it it's a science ship wait or is it a science ship Saru. <laughs> <laughs> I will just not answer your question. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, um, going... Silly is interesting. She's annoying. Okay. Um, but she's supposed to be, and I feel like she's also going to end up having a lot of depth. Mm-hmm. Um. She's also an engineer who isn't acting like a stereotypical engineer, which is cool. She's a great foil for Michael. Uh, so going back to yeah. science, I want to I want to yeah. talk about these spores. So they're these interesting fungi in Lieutenant, I think is his rank, Lieutenant Stamets. Stamets? I don't know the characters well enough yet. Lab. And apparently they're growing a science experiment. Maybe they're doing many science experiments in that lab. Who knows? But um, there's at least one where they're growing these spores that can seemingly transport you at faster than warp speed to different locations around the galaxy, perhaps to other galaxies. I really find this character, the science officer, very intriguing. And I wanted to know your thoughts on him, too. I like him. He might come across as harsh, um, but I think that he is exactly what somebody in his situation would be. He's hurt. He was idealistic once. He had this partner who he like worked with and really cared about. And God, I mean, he like as somebody who's like wanting to do science, I couldn't imagine like pouring my soul into something just because I loved it, and then having somebody like rip me and my partner apart, and then militarize what I was doing mm-hmm. and put me under a command chain under somebody who I thought was shady obviously this guy thinks that his captain is shady so 
Yeah, no, he I, he's just as cynical as I think somebody in his position would be. I really love the line in the shuttlecraft as they're approaching the Glen when Michael's trying to understand what this whole mission is about. And she asks, are we dealing with physics or biology? And he says, are you really so naive to think of them as separate? And then goes into yeah. a whole spiel about how physics and biology are really the same thing. That kind of resonated with me as an astrobiologist who comes from a background of planetary science, how everything is very interconnected and you can't really separate biology from the rest of the planetary processes, physical, chemical, geological, that are going mm-hmm. on on a planet. Yeah. Then he goes into saying that the spores are the... uh, Well, he says panspermia, which is really cool. So the spores are a source of panspermia, which is, for listeners who don't know, the idea that life can hop from planet to planet, originate somewhere, and then eventually land via like a meteorite transfer on some other habitable world. Um, But... Then he goes into like they are the they give energy to the universe and hold galaxies together and it sounds very metaphysical and I'm just what if, it, what if this is what dark matter is in the Star Trek universe? I had that thought too, like dark matter, but then like they can interact with it and they can see it in the little containment thing that Lorca puts Michael Burnham in at, at the end. Yeah, like maybe the spores themselves aren't dark matter, but they can like touch it mm. or. Like, what I was thinking is, like, maybe these mundane-ish spores that they can grow can somehow interact with, like, a bigger network. Because it'd have to be, like, subspace, basically. So Star Trek's, like, established that there's this thing called subspace, which is basically an extra-dimensional space through which you can send information, which allows you to transmit it faster than the speed of light. Right. And so the way that fungal networks work in reality is, like, there's just a lot more under the surface than you could, like, they're certainly not transcending dimensions, mm-hmm. but this, the, the writers could have taken the idea of, like, how when you walk into a forest, there's this whole world under your feet that you never see that's, like, aware and reacting, like, measurably to think, to you stepping on it. Like, when you walk into the forest, the whole forest fungus network knows you're there. Mm. Um, like, lots of distinct organisms that are all connected by this kind of unseen web. So I, I like the idea that they're providing a a fun explanation for for dark matter like this is obviously like techno babble we're not supposed to truly understand it and i mean of course it probably doesn't work out the way they want it to because we're not fungus traveling in in the few series that are supposed to come after it right like there's gonna have to be some implosion where they just go back to work mm-hmm. but it's interesting because basically star starfleet has already engineered a way of sending information faster than the speed of light like they can they can send messages through subspace so i can't like, if that's possible physically, that's an ecological niche. So it would make sense to me in a universe of unlimited possibilities that maybe somewhere one thing would figure this out through evolution. And then, you know, it would be able to spread using that ridiculous ability to go faster than the speed of light. So. Right. Higher dimensional fungi. All right. I hope they try to explain <laughs> yeah, it somehow. Drop just, me some familiar techno cool babble. Biology centric plot. I mean, it's certainly, like, uh, it's like, if somebody was talking to me, like, a conspiracy theorist was like, there's actually space fungus controlling our lives, and be like, lol, no. But as a Star Trek plot, I mean, it's interesting. Like, mm-hmm. it's not any less feasible than a lot of the other stuff that we stomach from them over the years, like Heisenberg compensators. So I'll, I'll accept it. I'll accept it in this world that already, like, does some some creative manipulation of what we understand about the universe. Mm-hmm. 
yeah then i mean biophysics is a growing field maybe we'll discover <laughs> universe transcending fungi who yeah. knows probably yeah. not i i totally doubt it but it was, it was a cool thought i guess i liked i liked it for the uniqueness all right to end, let's get one word. What one word would sum up your feelings right now about the first three episodes of Discovery? Oh, boy. My feelings are just like, hmm. I think dark. Mm-hmm. Just nothing is clear. That's so true. There's a lot in the shroud of mystery right now. You can't even decide. Like, even... even freaking Tilly. I was like, oh, I'm writing you off immediately. And then she has this like, I'm going to be captain one day. And I'm just like, wait, what? So it was like, every has a twist. You don't understand any character's whole story. It's not like the original series where you walk in, first episode, you know who Kirk's fucking bones are. Mm-hmm. You know their deal. Like, yeah. You might not know all of the details of their backstory, but you know what they're going to operate like. Whereas now, I was like, I have no idea what people are going to do. I just it's it's murky i think murky it's unclear yeah and for me that word for me that word would probably be like edge because i feel like the 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 series is very edgy but at the same time i also feel like i am on the edge of my seat just wanting to know what happens next because like you say i have no idea which way this plot is going to turn and that's so great in this serialized nature of storytelling for star trek and i'm really enjoying the feeling of getting so excited for the next episode. Like, I I grew up watching Voyager, and I was excited that there was another episode of Voyager coming out the next week, but I never felt this kind of plot anticipation because at the end of every Voyager episode, basically the plot just reset. You know, they're still on their way home, but nothing the previous episode really carried over. over. Yeah. Yeah. And so this just feels completely different. It's a very different Star Trek feeling, and I'm loving it. Yeah, it's funny. They wrap in... A traditional Star Trek episode, though. You have your away mission. You have the weird thing on the other ship. They take care of that. That plot's, like, resolved. Mm-hmm. Except at the end, we see that the captain has beamed aboard this freaking oh, thing. But <laughs> other, other than Lucius Malfoy playing some tricks on us. And, and also, like, the mutiny plot with the, like, taking down the Klingons. That's sort of your, like, traditional Star Trek episode within the episode. Mm-hmm. So they're, like, keeping nuggets of that sort of original resolved storyline thing it's like a bunch of resolved stories within a, a larger arc is what it feels like yeah so I mean, they've, they've been inspired by that serial like storytelling but they're bringing in this cool story arc which does make it like a lot more it's it's it's, it's fun to watch it's, gripping, it's really yeah. fun to watch and i am really on the edge of my seat like you said waiting for the next one mm-hmm. yeah. all right well we'll catch up again after the next episode or or two and um yeah Thanks for joining me, Elise. Mm-hmm. It's a pleasure. Go eat some food. Yeah. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, that concludes episode 17 of Strange New Worlds. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Elise Cuts about the first three episodes. Episode four airs tonight in the USA and tomorrow in Edinburgh. Until next time, see you out there. I can show you. Okay. Pick some up today.
Nice. Uh, my professor for my paleontology class is an American who went to Chicago for paleo. Okay. But yeah, basically today we just went to this, we went to the, the index site of the Ordovician Silurian boundary and picked up a whole bunch of graptolites. Remind me w- how old that is. It's, it's at like 444 million years ago. Nice. That's, yeah. That's pretty cool. Here, let me see if I, I have any good graptolites that you can see. I have like piles of rocks. Okay. Um, okay. I'm going to make it full screen so I can see these things. Okay. Uzi, you see these little... I see little scratch marks or yeah, what look what like scratch are. marks. Okay. That's what they are. But yeah, there's that. Um, let me see if I have any better ones. pretty good oh they're kind of like folded over on themselves okay yeah basically what they were were like these they floated in these fans they're like really weird and um i'll send you i'll send you in the skype chat okay here this is what they were and so you can um pick up like the little kind of u-shaped spiny bits so they were like animals yeah yeah each individual like thing was an animal they look like um, jellyfish. And, yeah, so they like floated over the deep ocean, mm-hmm. and so this is like how you can tell deep ocean sediments from shallow ocean sediments because they didn't. You don't find these in shallow water, and you won't find like corals or anything where you'll find these. So, yeah, pretty cool. Awesome. Um, I have yeah. a ton of them. It, the I haven't washed them, and the the camera isn't doing them justice. But I've I've brought enough to distribute some graptolites to chosen individuals when I get back. Awesome. So. Yeah, it will continue to collect fossils that happen to have fallen out of their outcrops.